You are listening to The Same Drugs with Megan Murphy. I'm Megan Murphy. Today on the show, I'm speaking with James Lindsay, probably best known for the Grievance Studies hoax, wherein he and two other scholars, Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian, submitted a number of fake papers to journals in fields like gender studies, queer studies, and fat studies. He has a doctorate in math and a background in physics. Um, He's the author of six books. His most recent book is How to Have Impossible Conversations. James is also the co-founder of New Discourses, and he really knows how to have a good time on Twitter. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? (laughs) We're already Um, laughing. We've we've really got past hello. Yeah, off to a great start. (laughs) Um, Maybe you can start by telling me just a little bit about yourself and your background. Are you a mathematician by trade? I used to be. Um, I do have a doctorate in math. I got a PhD in the subject in 2010, but I have not done math professionally in 10 years. So we'll let people do the math and figure out how long I worked professionally in math after I finished my doctorate. Uh, Zero. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I do have a background in math, but no, I am not a working mathematician. And I don't think I'm sharp enough in a subject to call myself a mathematician anymore, but people argue with me about this sometimes. Okay. Let's uh, get right into this two plus two thing. (laughs) I've spent so much time really trying to figure it out. (laughs) Um, It's four, just the Cliff's Notes version. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean literally what the answer is, but (laughs) thank you. Just trying to, I was like, you know, I've, I've read so many tweets about the whole (laughs) thing and i read or i attempted to read your article that you wrote um Mm -hmm. explaining the whole situation which was very useful although i had to sort of like skim over the middle chunk because i'm not a math person and i got really overwhelmed (laughs) i was like triggered by my like yeah i should have put a trigger warning on there (laughs) this is a mathy article um but why don't you tell me about it and and explain how that all began and then what the reaction was. Okay, so you've actually made me slightly self-conscious because last night for my own thing, I recorded my own podcast. It's like an hour and 40 minutes about two plus two. And um, it's like really mathy in the middle, but it's not even written down. It's it's words like out loud. So it's even worse. Um, I got really self-conscious in the middle of recording it. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I'm doing math out loud. And to, there's not a chalkboard. There's nothing to communicate this to people. Okay, it might, so, I mean, that might help. Who knows? That might actually be easier for me to explain, but I'll definitely listen to it anyway and do my best. All right. So this all started, I guess I have to take blame for this, but I don't think that I'm the relevant character in making it a thing. Um, and the character we think is maybe also relevant is not also the relevant character in making it a thing. Uh, I've been doing some homework into figuring out how all this happened and, and what, how it got so big. And so it all kind of started with a, with a direct message conversation. Somebody on Twitter was having with me and, uh, this, this woman was asking me, you know, how would they think about this? How would they think about that? The, they being the, um, postmodern critical social justice uh, this new ideology that's canceling everybody. And she said, you know, would they say two plus two equals five? Would they say two plus two equals three? What would they say? And I, it was some different number. I said, it could be any number. It's two plus two equals. It doesn't matter. 
is the way that they think about the world. Um, they would also regard it in great suspicion that two plus two equals four taps into what they would call a hegemonic narrative that is imbued with all the power systems of whiteness, white supremacy, uh, patriarchy, the whole thing. White Western men invented the mathematics that we know and love today. So therefore, they imbued their politics into it. Therefore, every statement that's considered objectively true within it needs to be held with suspicion. There's no objective truth. Everything is subjective uh, and has something to do with who you are. And so they would say that two plus two can equal four, but it can also equal other things. And we shouldn't be too hasty to support the narrative that it equals four because that's built up with racism and white supremacy and patriarchy and homophobia and all of these terrible bigotries that it's been apparently used to, to uphold throughout history. So I explain this at the same time, the whole world is going mad around us. You know, George Floyd had just died and um, the riots were happening and all of these things were going on. And so I started with the help of a friend of mine who reached out um, another woman that turns out reached out and said, let's make these kind of Instagram friendly she called them something like scoopable little ice creams of, of satire against the ideology. So I call, we called them, it was her idea to call them woke minis. And so they're the cute little placards with often obnoxious bright colors on them that are, were originally formatted for the Instagram window, but we've now changed them to Twitter uh, because I suck at Instagram. And so uh, they have kind of like little devil's dictionary explanations of some idea. You know, it's like white privilege got defined as, you know, what all white people have that makes them, what, what all white homeless people have that make them richer than Oprah. Um, you know, there's little quips for the most part, but they're also theoretically correct in every case. And um, I did one for two plus two equals four that day when I'd had that conversation. And so two plus two equals four, I said, is a, is a perspective in white Western mathematics that marginalizes other possible values, which is straight up the way that they think of it. And so I put this out into the world in early June. And the intention behind the woke minis is of course to be funny, but it's also more importantly to get my followers and people who follow them and so on to download those and then stick them places as well, you know, kind of, Somebody says something stupid on Twitter about the woke ideology, and then you stick the appropriate woke mini as a reply or as a quote tweet or something and show them, you know, what they're actually tapping into. So nothing much happened. This was, you know, the first week of June. Nothing much happened until the first week of July. Then our friend at the New York Times, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 Project, uh, decides to jump in on this. She has some tweet about maybe your standard, you know, people who want to talk about so-called standards and scare quotes need to reflect. And maybe it's your standards that are the damn problem or something like this. And so somebody takes my two plus two equals four woke mini sticks it underneath. She decides to make fun of it. Seeing my handle, I think on there, I can't guess at her motivations for sure, but why she would decide to trash this thing from some random person on Twitter. I don't know. Um, some random person who does follow me, it turns out. And so she says, Using Arabic numerals uh, to try to defend white Western mathematics is so damn classic. 
And so she tries to problematize me. And of course now she's big. So that makes a lot of people pay attention to it. And so now we think we've identified the storyline and the villains involved myself and, and my nemesis at the New York times. And no, this isn't actually where the two plus two equals five part, which really blew it all up, came into it. It turns out that for the next four or five days, lots of people came in kind of like woke math land, mostly math educators, not mathematicians, to try to defend that two plus two doesn't have to equal four. And then they've come up with a bunch of creative, silly things that are bad mathematics. And finally, one of them lands on the Twitter desk of, uh, I don't know how to say this woman's last name. I did spend some time trying to figure it out, but it's probably racism that I failed. Um, it has Sh- to be. It's the only answer. Yeah. Shraddha Sharude is her name, uh, as far as I can tell, trying to read it phonetically. She is the secretary director of the Washington State Ethnic Studies Program in Education. And this, of course, is now everybody's, not everybody, but a lot of people have seen that this has famously put forth this set of guidelines that Seattle school system is actually going to use. They want to expand it to the state of Washington. California and New York are looking at copying it or building off of it for their own states. California's project is much further along than New York's uh, as far as the mathematics goes. But this is a thing that's intended to spread. And one of the things on there is that she one of the, the, the critical questions that she has as part of the curriculum for K through 12 math education is who gets to decide what is right in mathematics? Not not how do we decide who gets to decide, because it's always some political par- process. And when she put that out into the world, people started to make fun of her and started to pin her with two plus two equals five. So she saw this debate growing around the thing and tweets in reply to somebody who had provided her with some bad argument. Wow, I love this. People attacked my my project with, with two plus two equals five. How can we turn this into a true statement? And that was like a, a bat signal to these woke activists to try to find ways to explain how two plus two can, in fact, equal five. They really picked the wrong example because it pretty much never works. Um, no matter how you bend and twist things, it just doesn't, it, it's two plus two doesn't equal five. Um, so then a month long shit fest happened <laughs> and it, now it's being written about in mainstream journalistic outlets. I'm waiting to see the Wikipedia entry for two plus two equals five to change to, to include this, this skirmish in the culture war. Um, and so this is how this happened. But this actually sets the context. We have real activists with real bureaucratic power making real changes in our state's education systems who pushed the the argument about two plus two not having to equal four and specifically equaling five so that they could defend their activist agenda that they're that they are. They have the bureaucratic power to install and are installing it in real school systems. And um that sets actually the context in which this seemingly idiotic debate is playing out, which in, in you know theoretical abstract land is about, do we have access to objective truth or not? Right. So, I mean, it sounds to me like I, I guess what I've been trying to figure out is what the motivation is for even attempting to defend two plus two equals five. And what I could gather was it was either or all of these things, like it's, Postmodernism as applied to math or science mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And it's that, as you mentioned earlier, like 
anything that can be said to have come from white male Western institutions, systems of power, whatever has to be rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't be correct because we've seen it as we've seen these institutions and, and this group of people as um, inherently unbiased, inherently rational, inherently correct for so long that now the only way to deal with that is to like reverse it and say, actually, they're always wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and that maybe people just these people just hate you and so want to take apart anything that you say or believe or argue. Right. So those are all, (laughs) yes, one thing that's important, but you do have most of the important pieces, including that they just hate me and need me to be wrong. (laughs) But you'll notice that that Nicole Hannah-Jones didn't say I was wrong. She didn't say I was ridiculous. She tried to problematize me. She said I used Arabic numerals to defend white Western math. She could not say I was wrong because I wasn't wrong about what they think about the world and power systems in it. So the part that you're missing is that there is a, with the postmodern part that you mentioned, so maybe you didn't technically miss it. uh, There is an aspect to that where the activists want to undermine anybody's ability to grasp objective truth and argue for it on their own terms using the evidence of their own eyes or the, the logic uh, that, that we've figured out and derived. And they want to replace that. And in all sets of objective standards, it seems to be the case with subjective standards that they will then set themselves up morally to be the correct arbiters of. So in other words, when we see things like two plus two, does it equal four or five or can it equal? And it seems all silly. This is also connected to the, to the very vague phrase, you know, defund the police. Well, what does defund mean? Does it mean take away all their money, which is what it sounds like it means, or does it mean something much softer? Does it mean like reboot the police? Does it mean cut salaries of say the first black police chief um, until she quits her job? I mean, what does it mean? And so this, this gives another word here that, that that's important is violence. Also, it gives it's very important because you see both directions on violence. You see them having a very expansive definition of violence, where words are violence, where being exposed to images they don't like is violence. But at the same time, burning down property or destroying property is not violence. Uh, so you have this very weird situation where now all of a sudden you have a clique of people who are going to be able to decide what is the correct interpretation of everything. And the rest of us have no grounds upon which to argue because there is no objective truth. There is no stable meaning to words or symbols. Even symbols like two plus two don't have stable meanings. And therefore we have to trust our our gurus or our new masters or whatever we want to call them or the party, whatever we want to call it in order to be able to adjudicate truths. And that's a lot scarier when you mm-hmm. when you when you put it that way. And I don't know that a lot of them are willfully doing that. I don't want to overstep and say, "Oh, look at these," you know, you know, look Doctor Evil or something. I I think that they just have imbibed upon this anti-objectivity worldview and understand, kind of in a in a very um, almost like Pavlovian way, that they get what they want when they play the game and they don't get what they want when they don't play the game so that they know how to continue to play this game without necessarily really understanding where the end of the road is. Um, And then, and I mean, I guess part of what's at the root of that is 
identity politics. So it's that mm -hmm. you're correct or you're incorrect based on your your pronounced identity, you know, whatever words you want to insert right. there, like queer, B-I-P-O-C, uh, yeah. trans, whatever else. Right, would, and then the entire... Give you kind of power to speak in this current moment. Right, right. As measured according to what you, you might call an ethno-historical measurement. Like I saw this guy today, one of these these people who uh, actually agreed immediately with Nicole Hannah-Jones by saying he, had, he actually quote-tweeted himself in full agreement with her. <laughs> and his tweet that he quote-tweeted was from like a year before, so like over a year ago or maybe almost a year and a half ago where he had said one plus one equals two is a hegemonic discourse. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. So this guy's in science and technology right, studies I saw, at the I saw university of Edinburgh. He did a 38 tweet thread today <laughs> trying to show how people used historically when, when the, the height of col uh, colonialism, there were some, some jerks who went and used the fact that some cultures didn't have strong conceptions of number above three or four, you know, the one too many cultures and fleeced them, like tricked them, you know, traded them. They said that they would give them two for this of two for that. And then they were able to cheat them and they figured out a way to cheat them. And that therefore this was all tapped into this longstanding narrative of racism. So two plus two equals four is actually a racist narrative and using um, their, their reliance that I don't even know if they realize that they're using it, but their reliance on Derrida who said that words and ideas have traces in the discourses that never quite go away. Uh, obviously because some colonial jackass used two plus two equals four in a racist way and set up discourses around that behavior. Clearly somehow two plus two equals four is still a racist statement that we have to reckon with. It's like this broken logic is it just keeps showing up. So, but yeah, 38 tweets in a thread trying to argue that two plus two equals four is racist. It's like, they're still digging the hole. Even though they, they, I mean, I think everybody in, in, on Twitter has decided they lost the argument, but they're still trying to make it. Yeah, it's really odd to me. Um, it's also like, I'm like, do these people have jobs? Or <laughs> like, I don't know, a 38 thread tweet. Um, how did this happen? Like, how did we get here uh, to this point where this is like, not only that people are making these arguments, um, but that it's it's treated as legitimate by a lot of people, you know, the media, obviously mm -hmm. progressive activists, anybody who's trying to stay woke. Yeah, academia. Academia is obviously. cooked. Academia is actually how this happened. Okay. Um, it's very difficult for people to pin it on that because there was so much real activism on the ground. And I'm tracing back now into the 60s. Uh, you know, there was obviously real radical activism on the ground, you know, people actually doing marches. And I'm not talking about John Lewis and Martin Luther King. I'm talking about, you know, like the Black Panthers and all of this. There were real people doing real critical theory straight out of Herbert Marcuse, you know, his, his teaching, uh, repressive tolerance and all of that. Going back to the 60s and the activists, you know, like the concept of white privilege didn't did and did not originate with Peggy McIntosh in 1989. She appropriated it uh, from white skin privilege, which was, as far as I know, first appeared, um, maybe it actually everything almost <laughs> traces back to W.E.B. Du Bois, but um, it, was, it was prominently pushed by the Weather Underground in the 1970s. So mm -hmm. very radical activists being my point, push a lot of these narratives, develop a lot of the concepts, and then academia 
actually developed and legitimized them by getting them in the academic literature later. And this continues, obviously, with queer theory in particular, you get, I mean, I don't know which is more significant in developing queer theory, any given queer theorist or Tumblr. I think Tumblr has done more queer theory than than uh, the queer theorists for real can keep up with. I mean, they invented like 187 sexualities at one point or something like that. Like every possible way you can feel about your genitals is a sexuality now. <laughs> um, and it needs a flag and it needs a complicated word derived from the Latin and, you know, whatever else. So activism has a lot to do with it. But how we actually got here is that these ideas started to get legitimized very strongly by activist departments taking root in academia, which was a partially deliberate strategy. It was also partially the desire of uh, academic administrators to be on the right side of history, you know, out of the happy 60s and, and to look like they were taking progressive steps away from the bad old days, which is good and bad mixed uh, circumstance. You, these things are fine, but you really do have to kind of keep an eye on them. And they did not keep an eye on them. Eventually, meaning by around 1981 or two, because uh, we can name the scholars who are responsible for it, this stuff started very strongly taking over. And this is this is the answer to your question. How did this happen? They started taking over our colleges of education. Mm -hmm. These ideas were injected very, very vigorously into the colleges of education, our teachers' colleges, in the early 1980s. And so that rapidly spread under the banner of critical pedagogy. As this ideology does, it makes its way in, and then it starts to assert itself as the one true way and elbows everything else out, problematizes everything else out. And then before too long, so probably even by the time Bell Hooks was writing Teaching to Transgress, which I think was 94, might've been 93. By the time that came around, our teachers' colleges were more or less just creating critical pedagogists who wanted to teach critical theory in our schools. And our school administrators began to be required to go through teacher college certifications in many cases. So we started to revamp our education system from within. And so at least for 20 years, they've had a full capture of the educational system. I mean, you teach a generation to think this way. I remember the most stark thing that I that I heard one of these, I got in a, a conversation with one of these activists at one point talking about the universities and, and they were telling me that we were wrong about the grievance studies stuff. And they said the universities didn't put this in top down. These departments existed, but that wasn't really significant. The big changes were, were administrative and they were demanded by the students bottom up. And I took that seriously and thought about it and was like, well, how did the students decide that they wanted these changes? Did they just pluck this out of the air? And the answer, of course, is no, they did not pluck this out of the air. They were being taught the fundamentals of the, the critical mindset, you know, being asked to read things like Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States in school and their history classes and so on. And then they were, you know, they brought that culture up to the university with them and started to demand administrative uh, support for their beliefs that they were too fragile to have questioned at that point. Um, so taking over the teachers' colleges is how this happened. Mm. And like, so how did how did you get interested in this whole thing? I, I mean, is is grievance studies your term first of all? Where did that term come from? Well, it turns out we thought it was our term that we made up, but Stefan Collini, who's an English professor, I think, actually wrote about. The same concept under exactly the same name, I think, in 1990. 
So Mm -hmm. we didn't know that when we called it grievance studies. I started calling it grievance studies on Twitter before we went public with the thing because I just thought it was funny. And then when we were like, well, what do we call what we did? And finally, we decided grievance studies was the was the term to go with has meme quality to it. So it was our term, but apparently we weren't the first people to think of it. Okay. Um, And can you just explain that term? Like, why did grievance studies make sense for you in terms of what you were trying to address? Yeah, I really should actually. I wish I had it in front of me. I would just read to you the paragraph where Colini outlined it in 1990 because he catches it perfectly. I was like, I found that one day and I read it and I was like, oh, wow. That's exactly what we should have said, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but it, he was talking about essentially the banality of how cultural studies had had actually the banality that cultural studies had taken up. And so he said that there were basically three or four different variants of the ways that people were studying culture, one of which he thought was legitimate and all the rest he thought were bogus. And one of the ones I think the third one he names is is grievance studies. And he says that it's basically the fixation upon some social grievance that you can then cast in vaguely sociological terms and then just kind of just keep looking for examples and proof and, and milking that grievance, uh, a very navel-gazing kind of approach to cultural studies. It's, you know, the the self-pity department of, of culture, more or less. And um, we saw it as after having spent, you know, a little over a year really immersed in their literature as what we had discovered independently was everything is picking some grievance politics. I mean, famously, one of the papers that we we ended up getting accepted uh, was a rewrite of, of Hitler's Mein Kampf, uh, one of the chapters of, of his book. And of course, that made us have to wrestle with why that could have happened. And in wrestling with how that could have been possible, it struck us. It's the politics of grievance. That's what Mein Kampf is about. That's his struggle is all of his grievances being aired. If you've read, most people haven't bothered to read that book, and I, I don't blame them. Man, he is a ranty guy. It is a badly <laughs> written, angry, angry rant where he basically, you know, goes chapter or section by section, chapter by chapter, picking out everybody who more or less has ever pissed him off and just trashing them. <laughs> And it was so bad like with that. It's like grudge. It was. Book of it's grudges. It it's, it's, like, it's like the most angry, like, grudge breakup note ever. <laughs> it was so bad with that that it's on record. I'm, I'm almost positive that I read this, that Benito Mussolini said he tried to read it and was like, no. All he's doing is ranting at everybody he knows. This No. And so, but that was the point of commonality. It's like all they're doing is picking at grievances. It's like, how can we look at race and make people the most, feel like they're the most ripped off about their racial experience as possible, as long as they're not white or sometimes maybe Asian. And, you know, you pick your favorite identity factor and it's how do you tap into that grievance? How do you stoke that, uh, that, that desire for revenge and, and that was the common thread that we saw. So we're like, well, this is the study of a grievance. So, and that plus the fact that they, every one of these fields pretty much calls itself something studies, you mm-hmm. know, gender studies, women's studies, queer studies, sexuality studies, studies of science and technology. I mean, it's just, you know, they disability, all call it. fat, disability studies, fat studies. That's right. Yeah. Porn studies, yeah. media studies. So I, 
I mean, in case anyone who's watching doesn't know, the I mean, essentially the grievance studies hoax was you you and Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian came up with a whole bunch of I guess you you must have spent a lot of time writing papers. <laughs> we wrote, <laughs> like there was a lot of them. We wrote twenty of them <laughs> in ten months. So we actually wrote it worked out to uh, a new paper being written every two weeks. And these are full 8,000 word academic papers, fully cited, you know, formatted correctly, the whole thing. It was an insane writing job. It's like (laughs) if you count all the different drafts of just original content, replying to the reviewers, our own notes and things, it it totaled up close to 300,000 words in, in 10 months. So it was pretty insane how much how much writing there was involved with this. And so, yeah, what we intended to do was to find out if you could hoax these journals, like just write gibberish and they won't know because it's jargon and buzzwords. Turned out the answer was no. We figured that out. We started in August of 2017. By November, we had that figured out. And so then our second project, if that didn't work, was, well, let's actually get into it ourselves. Let's understand what's going on here. Because clearly they're publishing stuff that something's wrong with it. Uh, Let's become competent ourselves in figuring out what's wrong and how to reproduce it. And so we kind of shifted gears into a second phase that we would call a, we did call a reflexive ethnography. If we were doing anthropology, that's what we would call it. And that wasn't our idea. (laughs) Anthropologists told us that's what we were doing. Uh, near the end of it. And it's like, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. We're immersing ourselves in a culture. We're reflecting that culture back to them as best we can. They correct us or or validate our, our what we feed them. And we use that to update our understanding of the culture that we're immersing ourselves in. And so that's what's called a reflexive ethnography. Um, and so, yeah, we wrote 14 papers at, under that approach. And by the time that... Uh, we were caught out by the Wall Street Journal. Seven of those had been accepted for publication. The other seven were all still possible to you know, send back to peer review and so on. And four had actually been published. And one of those papers that had been published was given an award for excellence and scholarship by its journal, by the journal that accepted it, which was the leading journal in that niche field, which is feminist geography. Good work. Um I mean, what, what were you trying to get out of this? Were you trying to get acknowledgement from these disciplines that, oh, you no. know, they were... That no, was never okay. going to happen. No. Okay. So the, kind of the, long, the, the short version of this story, it's a very long and complicated story, is that we had, tr- we had already just kind of run into this stuff. We were all active within a new atheism movement. And we just, it, it got taken over pretty early. And we just kind of got slammed into this new world where, you know, their woke meltdown started in 2011. I mean, just full meltdown started in 2011. So it became really a toxic environment to be in. And we were trying to figure it out. So through the course of that, we tried to criticize it. And they just called us sexist and racist like everybody else. And so mm-hmm. then ignored everything we wrote thereafter. Made it impossible for us to get published with a ton of places very quickly. You know, kind of like proto-canceling. And then... Um, Peter, in particular, one of his things he does at Portland State is he likes to have public conversations and get an audience as he just likes having these things. And so he started trying to invite members of the gender studies faculty 
to have a conversation with them about some of these ideas. And they kept declining. Nobody would ever show up to any of these public conversations. We didn't know why at the time. I understand it now. And um, eventually, and it wasn't, it's not like he asked them like 50 times, like he's bugging them with an email every week. I think he asked them like four times or three times or something. They, they reported him for harassment of women <laughs> to his university. This actually doesn't surprise me because I've seen this happen so many times online. <laughs> yeah. And it's like he, they would, if he did an event that talked about any of the issues, they would, they would complain that there was nobody representing the issue there. So he's like, well, come. And then they're like, stop harassing us. You know, it's this whole, I mean, there was that meme way back in the day where there was a woman with a woman power fist shirt with the plus sign and it's pink and she's throwing crap over the wall the crap says opinions. The wall says the internet. She's throwing it over like a big smile on her face. And then it shows shovels and the poop coming back on her and hitting her. And she's like, ah, misogyny. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, if you're going to say nobody's having a conversation, you're not including us in the conversation and people invite you to be in the conversation and you say that's harassment. You're not playing an honest game anymore. So we were mystified by this. So, what we actually wanted to do was circumvent those problems and show the public what's actually going on. To, so to find a way to criticize this stuff and show the public that this is really going on because their deflection game is like 100%. Plus, Helen and I in particular, and very much so Helen, Helen was already fairly getting to be fairly expert in, in these issues, uh, like legitimately expert. And she was being told, and I was being told alongside her as I was learning it with her, that we didn't know what we were talking about. This doesn't exist. We aren't even experts. We don't know the fields. We can't criticize a field you don't know. You know, stay in your lane, that whole thing. And so Helen's motivation very strongly was, well, you know what? I'll show you I know it. We'll get a bunch of papers published and show you we know this stuff inside and out. And you can't deny our expertise anymore. So the field didn't mean to validate us. But obviously, when Hypatia starts accepting your papers enthusiastically, calling them excellent contributions to feminist philosophy, They've sort of given it to you whether they meant to or not. So we didn't expect to validate ourselves with gender studies people. We expected to make it undeniable to other people watching that our criticisms were coming from a place of being informed about what we were talking about rather than the usual thing, which is, oh, you're a mathematician. You don't know anything about social science. Get out of here. Well, I got seven papers published in like five months. So, yes, I do. You know, mm -hmm. it's sort of that that attitude was was part of it. And so, I mean, how did these, how did it come out that they were fake papers? Like, did you guys admit to this or did somebody figure you out or what? Both. Uh, so what had happened was one of the papers, the one that got the award, that's the infamous dog humping paper. Yeah. And that one's so crazy. It's so crazy. You're drinking something, so I won't dare say what's in the paper. That one's so crazy. <laughs> The, the second it got accepted, and of course, most people that, that pay attention to me have seen the video where, where Mike Nana put together a film. I know you spoke with Mike. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, seven-minute expose video when we went public. And it shows me saying, you know, we got a win. We got our first win. And I'm reading the email of the acceptance to a very, what most people may not realize, very drunk Peter and Helen um, laughing their heads off as I'm reading this acceptance letter. And Pete's like, dog park, and he's dying. So it turned out that we all happened to be in Portland around one of these events that Pete got. I think it's the one he or the one before the one he got accused of harassing these people for. Um, 
we were all together for that. And we happened to get it filmed, you know, that that paper got accepted. Well, the next day, it's like we all went to bed happy, kind of giddy. We got our first paper in and of all papers, that paper. And we woke up the next morning and we like out of the four of us, I think two or three of us independently had struck upon real peer review is going to tweet that thing. And there's no way. I mean, it's going to be a spectacle when they do, because it's so insane. And they monitor that journal, Gender, Place, and Culture. So it's definitely coming out on Twitter, and it's going to blow up. And then the right-wing media is never going to leave it alone. And that's what happened. Eventually, it turned out (laughs) for whatever set of weird reasons, the journal ended up delaying months and months. I think it wasn't until May that the paper actually got published. It was really late, seeing that it was accepted in February. And I mean published online. Like they had this weird delay. It was really kind of stressful. Several other papers got accepted in the meantime, which was really good. And then that thing went out and Real Peer Review got a hold of it in their Twitter feed and just made fun of it. Next thing you know, the National Review's writing about it. All these entities are writing about it. And uh, Campus Reform, one of their journalists, just wouldn't let it go. Just like she knew there was something about this story and it's like went full pit bull, you know, locked jaw on the ankle, wasn't letting go of this story. And what she thought was, is that we had a case because we, the author claimed to be a PhD in feminist studies. Turns out there aren't a whole lot of schools that give that degree. We just made stuff up. So we didn't know what we were doing when we made that up mm-hmm. and not very many schools give that degree. In fact, four in North America, give that degree. So yeah. this journalist just called. I was at one of those schools. Well, it turns out <laughs> Helen Wilson never was. And so she called around to every school and was like, aha, we have somebody who doesn't have a PhD claiming she has a PhD to get her papers published. So she thought she had some low grade academic credential scandal that she was going to try to bust. And Mostly the stories just kept getting ignored, getting ignored. Well, as journalists often do, she was perturbing her other journalist friends to try to, you know, create more smoke around that fire so that there'd be more attention on it. And she contacted somebody uh, at the Wall Street Journal, which is sort of a big deal. And so when she contacted the Wall Street Journal person, that person decided it's Jillian Melchor, decided she was going to look into it. And she did all of her due diligence very properly and started calling and asking the journal itself very awkward questions. So now the journal had emailed us and asked us to prove our identity. And we weren't about to commit actual forgery for this project. So we had already decided well ahead of time that something like that would be the last point. So I told Jillian by email, writing as Helen Wilson, I'll call you tomorrow, tell you what's going on. There's a little bit more to this than you understand. And I hope we can, you know, (laughs) have a nice private conversation about this and clear it all up. So I call her and, you know, I don't sound like a Helen Wilson, I guess. (laughs) And she's like, are you trans? And I was like, no, (laughs) no, (laughs) you've fallen backwards into something you didn't expect. So I told her and then it took her a long time. Again, fortunately, she to to get from, you know, thinking she had a, a scandalous liar about her um credentials to whoa you know full-blown gigantic academic expose well it was a big learning curve for her to write the story so that ended up buying us a couple of months i think until the story went public um in which time a couple more papers got accepted which worked out really well um 
So that's we went public willingly once a certain threshold had been crossed and we got dragged across that threshold. Yeah. I mean, I guess so I I I have a master's degree in gender, sexuality and women's studies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you know that? Yeah. So I when I first um I did a BA in women's studies while I was doing my BA in women's studies um that was around the time when all of those departments started becoming gender studies instead so right. i was in the process of finishing that degree and it became gender sexuality women's studies so i did a master's degree gender sexuality women's studies i was on track to do a phd so i went to simon fraser university which is one mm-hmm. of the very few universities who offers a phd in women's slash gender studies um and luckily, I bailed. Like, I finished my master's, and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> like, I am so tired of writing these papers that nobody reads. Like, what is the point of... Like, I wanted to speak to real people. I was still very interested and invested in feminism. I just didn't want to do academic feminism. Right. Um, and I hadn't totally sorted through why at the time. I've sort of only really sorted it through in the past three years. Um, but you know, initially my criticisms always were of third wave feminism, which is how I referred to it, third wave feminism, um, which I think actually really just is academic feminism. Like it's all this garbage queer theory. Um, uh-huh. And so yeah. I was interested to read, I actually, I, so I read your article criticizing feminist theory, which I found like pretty amusing. I sort of, I, I, if I'm totally honest, I didn't read it at first because I was like, ah, this is just some guy who hates feminism. <laughs> but, but it was quite good. Ah. So, <laughs> and it's true. I mean, there's the major problem now that I have with feminism is that there's there's a difference between feminist activism and actually this is my criticism of most activism is that like. People who are doing activism nowadays, especially in North America, so often are not actually fighting for anything specific. Like they're not fighting for legislative changes. They're not fighting for policy changes. They're not naming the specific problem that they want to change. They're saying we're fighting white supremacy. We're fighting racism. And it's like, what, what, what asked, like, how are you fighting this? Like, what's the plan here? (laughs) Engineer Um, the discourses. That's how they're, they're, they're trying to change the discourses. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that there's a tiny point of truth to it. And then as you said, it's like, what are you really doing? Yeah. It's like, you know, you're fighting over whether or not master bedroom is okay. Um, right. What are you achieving here? Like who's hurt by that? Um, Who's hurt? What, what is the one? The Siamese twins nebula that NASA said they're going to rename because, you know, they're obviously. I that. Yeah. Well, there you go. NASA. NASA's renaming nebulas because they have hurtful names to, I guess, somebody who's hurt on somebody else's behalf more than likely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I guess like I'm interested to know. More okay. I'm actually going to read something from your article because I found it funny. Um, <laughs> there's a few parts that I'm, I'm being wrong. held to account. <laughs> no, but it like it, yeah. Anyway, so you wrote, "Let's be real about something important. Nobody actually cares what feminist scholars think or why they think it. Truth be told, this isn't surprising. Feminist scholarship is a particular academic backwater that nobody should pay attention to, and it's probable that nobody would if it weren't so <laughs> becoming so painfully influential." 
Um, and then you write, with the exception of other feminists, more or less the entire world completely ignores feminist theory, and they have done so for decades, which has let it go quite far down its own self-referential rabbit holes. And I actually think you're probably, like, you're right. Like, it's like, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to get out of academic feminism. Right. It's like, this is just a bunch of people talking to each other, publishing these papers, publishing these research, these research papers that nobody reads outside of your, your supervisor, basically. Right. Um, you're not making any difference. You're not contributing anything. And then, of course, as I got later into my analysis, as I, you know, was just writing and whatever. Yeah. Like after I left university, then I started to realize that it's, you know, it's all jargon and it doesn't mean anything to anybody in the real world. It doesn't do anything for women. Like, I mean, sure. so I guess it's, it's good. It's not called women studies anymore because it really has nothing to do with women. It doesn't even have anything to do with real people for the most part. That's right. It's about socially constructed categories rather than any people whatsoever. It, so it's really, it has moved the fight to the abstraction of people and, and really of groups of people as they have been very cartoonishly defined rather than the, to, to deal with actual human beings. And it makes me wonder, have you ever read um, Helen's article? It's quite old now, um, three or four years ago, where she says why she no longer calls herself a feminist because she has quite the, you know, feminist bona fides and, uh, her chops and feminism go back pretty, pretty far and pretty deep, including, you know, like as a child marching with her mother and was, she did, you know, real hard feminist activism that was changing banking laws and mortgage laws so that women could have them in the UK, uh, you know, material stuff that makes a difference in people's lives. And so she had this article a few years ago where she's basically kind of had the same realization that, that you're talking about, where it's, you know, this is all, I mean, South Park just put it best. It's smelling each other's farts. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's just not, it's not helping anything or anybody. It's just, you know, how can they spin words and, and, and kind of ramble about these concepts that have just detached from, from real things. So, yeah, I mean, in the article that you read that I, that I wrote, my point was, of Quite course. Quite rude. <laughs> It was quite rude. It was intentionally quite rude. I but enjoy point, being rude, so I can't criticize that anyway. <laughs> my, my point was that it wasn't even anything about the scholarship itself. It, it was actually the criticism of the fact that nobody's looking at it. Mm. Uh, and when nobody pays attention to or criticizes a thing, they, the analogy that Helen and I were using, talking about it as you know, I was writing that essay, uh, and as we did the Grievance Studies Project as well, is kind of like those houses you see on like the cover of like a Dr. Seuss book where it's like, you know, like a string is holding up a whole turret or something, you know, an entire, it's something that can only be held up by magic. And it's sort of like that is what's going on in this theory. It's like, there's no real constraints because they don't have to pay attention to reality at all. So somebody builds this, you know, little wig wiggly thing and it ends in like a whole bedroom at the top that could not possibly be supported by anything. And so it's like, somebody should be paying attention to this, right? Somebody needs to be, if we're going to kind of jump in uh, on the whole, like, you know, the libertarian thing where they get a bit ridiculous, you know, somebody's needs to pay attention to the building codes here. Um, those matter because if it's not built right, it's going to fall in on itself. And of course, 
one of my concerns all along with with regard to that would would have been that there are still real issues that need to be solved. And if there are still real issues that need to be solved, probably best not to have the thing that's the most, you know, scholarly and important and rigorous in appearance to the average person literally be standing there pissing his pants in front of the world all the time. Um, the, the amount of, you know, like, I know it's jumping track, but I can't tell you right now how pissed off I get when people call and it's these these freaking activists, but then the, the media supporting them when they call critical race theory black thought. I mean, I get, I get livid that 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 garbage, that self-referential garbage is now the emblem of black thought. It's like I can't think of something that's more racist than that. That right. it's, that's horrendous because it's not rigorous. It, it, it explicitly in its you know outlines and pillars describes its own paranoia and its its um, antagonistic view toward rigor. Uh, and it, I mean, you can say soft bigotry of low expectations all you want, but this is coming from inside their own house, so it's something completely different than that. And then to say that's black thought, it's like mm, no, there are a lot of black people who aren't thinking this way and to tie them to something like this. I mean, that would be like taking like the QAnon people and saying white thought, you know, and it's just like, uh, yeah, mm. I mean, I, yeah, I know. I find it really, I mean, kind of disgusting how so many of these activists claim to be speaking on behalf of marginalized groups. And meanwhile, of course, just, railroad completely ignore and erase any of these individuals that they're claiming to be helping and supporting and speaking on behalf just ignore that they even exist ignore that there's like you know like probably a a majority of this group that you're supposedly fighting for doesn't actually share your politics and it's so strange to me that they continue to get away with this like even you know um like, I mean, there's all sorts of groups you could reference, but Black Lives Matter, like those protesters, um, I don't know that there is a majority of Black people in America or North, Mer- North America who share these politics. Like, my perspective is that, like, most people in the world, never mind in North America, most people are not left-wing. Most people are probably not anything at all. Most people are just like living their lives and have like a variety of opinions that aren't going to fit neatly within this box that's right wing or left wing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you know, like trans activists do it also because I, I sort of don't really believe that most people who identify as trans necessarily want to make, I mean, there's no poll to show this, but want to like railroad women and destroy everything that women actually built up that actually was useful in the feminist movement, like transition houses, you know, like women's sports and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I just, I'm so appalled that you could dare to speak on behalf of people that you don't speak on behalf of and then act like you're, you know, you're the one that should be listened to and everybody else who criticizes you has to be ignored. Yeah, it's like uh, when we actually released the Grievance Studies Project, and I know everybody says, oh, you could have changed it. But no, if you actually go back, the original video we released, that one of the hashtags under the on, on YouTube on the original release was, uh, and then the, to kind of prove it, it's the last line in the video. So it's like, 
why would we make that up now? It, it was uh, something, what is it? They don't speak for me or something like that. Mm. Um, so it was, it was supposed to be that idea. It's like these activists are actually fringe. They're not even just like left wing. They're like super left wing, <laughs> you know, it's like calling people comrade left wing. Mm. And that doesn't speak for a lot of people. It, it, as you said, most people just don't have even well-defined political identities. Like my mom drives uh, some of her friends absolutely crazy by repeatedly asking them whether Donald Trump is a Democrat or a Republican, um, which is like a meta joke on like 10 levels. But um, it's like, she's like, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like, which one is he? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> she's like, I don't know. <laughs> she's like, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's like, mom, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's going on here? And so a lot of people, you know, the point is that a lot of people want to go on with their lives. And when politics is doing its thing correctly, you know, you could read this in Laoza if you want to, you know, the, the Tao Te Ching even brings this up. What's that? 2,600 years old or something. That when politics is doing what it's supposed to be doing, the normal person doesn't even know what's happening. They don't have to be aware of politics. It's only when politics is going wrong that people need to be aware of politics. And so most people don't have well-formed political identities and don't want one. And this attempt to politicize everything, therefore, becomes very poisonous um, and obvious, obviously very fractious. Uh, so it's really a, a tragedy. But it, it, I'm with you. It's like I can't believe that people are still just willing to say, nope, that's the authoritative voice about all black things. You know, Black Lives yeah. Matter. That's it. And then the queer the queer people, um, queer theorists having taken over the entire dialogue. Mm -hmm. about lgbt like almost every gay or lesbian person i know is like if i had to have been queer i never would have come out i don't like the queer people i just want to live a normal life and so what do they do is they write these articles saying that pete Buttigieg is like the wrong kind of gay he's not gay enough to take his gay card away it's like kanye got his black card taken away because he put on a mega hat and danced around and you know whatever you had your feminist card revoked because you dared to say that women are women and <laughs> whoa, watch out. Yeah. Um, like it, you'd think that would be kind of like the basis for feminism, but it seems to me to be a pretty, so you got your, like yeah. we're talking about women. So we know what women are, correct? Nope. No, <laughs> no, no, we need, we need to queer that girl. Yeah. I mean, yeah. All the lesbians that I know are like, they don't want anything to do with the LGBT activists or queer studies or whatever. It just doesn't represent them in any way no. at all. No, the lesbians are like, I'm out. Uh, yeah. they've, they've been out on this for a while, but it's even, you know, it's harder when you get to trans, but even a significant number of the trans people I know, and I will admit, I don't know that many comparatively speaking, aren't really on board with this queer theory stuff. They just want to live their lives. And the part of the queer theory is that you have to turn your identity into a piece of politics. Right. Right. So you have to go out. Why are they going out in the street wearing rainbow suspenders and short shorts and a beard and twerking with like, you know, funny sunglasses on? It's because you have to be exuberantly queer as a political performance. And then you start like working through this and you start, you know, you got like the gif with like the math happening around your head and you're like, wait. They're saying that, that gayness to be authentic has to be a performance. So now conversion therapy can pray the gay away or something because that performance is certainly something somebody could stop doing. Mm. And 
now all of a sudden it's like, where are these people? What are, what are they doing? And then I, you know, you find out if you ever get in a so-called debate, cause it's not really a debate. They just say random stuff and yell and clap and act weirdly. But with one of these queer theory people, um, it's very helpful just to ask, what do you think of marriage equality? Where do you stand on that? Because most people don't realize that they were against it. So they have to admit that they were against it or they have to come out in favor of it, at which point their queer allies are going to destroy them later. So they, they get caught you know, on the horns of, the, of a dilemma that they've created for themselves. But most people don't know that they vigorously, vigorously opposed marriage equality, vigorously opposed it. Uh, and they still do because it normalizes gayness and normalizing things is bad in queer theory. You have to wear your queerness as like a performance uh, for, for a politics of parody. Thank you very much, Judith Butler. Yeah. Um, and Judy. so I, <laughs> um, I guess like, so I wonder if you can clarify a bit on the feminism thing. So is it, um, specifically academic feminism and feminist theory that you take issue with, or is it feminist activism or is it like a specific kind of, I, like, so I don't know how no, much you know about the waves. Um, I know uh, enough about the waves to know what the waves are. And that if you bring up the waves that somebody's going to jump down your throat and say the linear wave model is a construct, you know, right. so uh, I don't yeah. know technically if we're in a third wave or a fourth wave. And I've heard arguments in both directions on that. Um, I also know that, for instance, there's these other branches like womanism and uh, black feminism that reject the linear wave model. I also know that there are other branches besides that, like Islamic feminism and a bunch of other feminisms that are a little bit more uh, specific. Radical feminism gets complicated because you have to ask, how are you radical? Are you like strictly radical or did you are you more into like the materialist view? Are you more socialist? Are you all the way Marxist? And so I understand that there is a huge kind of menagerie of views of feminism. And I don't have super deep information on all of them. I do understand many, if not most of them with some degree of clarity. And I have different thoughts on more or less all of them. For example, the thing that they hate that's called choice feminism. I would meet the definition of choice feminism. Okay. The usual dictionary definition of feminism uh, I would meet that definition. I have very positive thoughts, which puts me at odds with most of my conservative friends about the liberal aspects and even some of the materialist aspects of second wave feminism. I have very little patience for anything third wave. And if there's a fourth wave, it's worse. Um, first wave, of course, I think was a necessary very practical, thing. very, very <laughs> practical. Um, so yeah, it's re- it's complicated. <laughs> it's really complicated. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not really into le- lesbian separatism or any of this kind of thing. <laughs> so it goes a bit far. If you, I mean, we can just start like lay, lay, throwing out jargon like sex positive. Yes, you know, so that's going to shut off a whole branch of sex negative feminists that that I don't agree with. I mean, people, sorry to interrupt, but people always call me sex negative. So what my, my relationship to sex negative and sex positive is that those terms don't actually mean what they really mean when they're used. Right. By third That's probably family. actually correct. Yeah. So, cause I, I would argue that I am sex positive and that I'm opposed to like the sexualization of like violence and degradation, but because I've opposed 
Um, you know, like I've been opposed to prostitution, the sex industry, the sex trade. And I talk about, you know, the harm of, again, sexualizing violence and pornography and, and, you know, the virulent misogyny that happens in pornography and the way that women are abused and exploited in the sex trade. That's why I've been labeled sex negative. So, I I mean, which I don't think is sex negative at all because I just want sex to not be like hurtful and abusive to Right, 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 I right. want women to be participating in sex of their own volition and enjoying it. So. Right. So, which would be very positive. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so I don't know what exactly to give you. I mean, I am strongly choice feminist as, as it's defined. And of course they hate choice feminism uh, within this kind of solidarity model, the intersectional AKA third wave has brought in. Um, but I don't know if that answers your question adequately. I mean, I was, yeah, I was just curious. Like, I, I, I guess I think like, I'm less radical feminist than you would be, but probably, I mean, I don't identify as a radical feminist and I haven't really ever. It's just that my, you know, my feminism has been more rooted in second wave feminism mm-hmm. and probably more radical feminist because essentially anybody who, anybody who is opposed to prostitution and nowadays anybody who's opposed to um, trans ideology, gender identity ideology is just labeled a radical feminist because right, of all, right, right, all the right. third wave or liberal feminists or whatever you want to call them have yeah. gotten on board with all that stuff. Like sex work is a choice. It's always a choice. It's potentially empowering. And obviously gender identity is legit and anyone can be a woman if they say they're a woman. You right. know, it's not, it's not even feminism at all as far as no. I'm concerned. No, so, it's it's uh, postmodern identity politics at that point. Um, yeah, cause these are, these are difficult and nuanced issues. Like each one after another is very, very difficult. Um, and as I said, second wave liberal feminism, certainly I agreed with it. Even some of the materialist analyses, I'm not really a socialist. So when they start tying, you know, like a oh, patriarchy and capitalism, it's like, yeah, capitalism used some of that stuff, like used women in particular ways, but they use everything. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. because, that you know everything that has market value gets used by by capitalism this can create harms for women this can create famously also people brought up how it's created harms for black men it actually creates harms for damn near everybody uh if it can get the, get its teeth in you but that's one of these things that i you know that i generally anytime somebody is a somethingist i usually start to to back up a little bit because ists whether it's feminist whether it's you know whatever tend to miss that there are important trade-offs and so that there there's some point on the spectrum of of harm that is a net positive to to allow people or to allow that to occur and if you start to try to stamp all that out you start to create unintended consequences that create more damage overall than than not and so there's a there's a trade-off point with basically everything um and like I said, I just don't find Marxist and socialist analyses to be terribly useful for a lot of stuff. I like some of the points that they can bring up, but I don't agree with much of that analysis myself. Mm. I mean, I just, I guess I st- I've started to feel that I don't want to be an ist and I don't want to identify myself as an anything just because I find it so lim- limiting. And you just, <laughs> you make yourself vulnerable when you do that, because if you say, 
I'm a feminist, that means that other people are going to say, oh, well, you're a feminist. Like, why are you doing this? You're not a real feminist. And then I just want to be like, fine, I'm not a fucking real feminist. I'm just going to be what I am. And, you know, I don't, gonna... I don't want to be tested. This is, this is what I believe. And if I can't believe this and also be a feminist, then I don't really care. Like, what yeah. is the point then? This is exactly the same thing that I went through with regard to atheist. So it's another ist. And I got really pissed off when people started to define the one true atheist community and how, you know, they, people were even saying, I try to be a good atheist. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? You know, you try to be a good, don't believe in God. Like, what, <laughs> how do you, do you like practice not believing? What, how do you get better at it? It doesn't make any sense. So it's like, what uh, does that mean? I don't, I'm not really familiar with that whole community what it meant at all. Was dipping into the kind of world of, of skepticism and sort of scientism, <laughs> scientism is how you pronounce that, sorry. And uh, ultimately social justice is what it was. It was, they started to outline a moral code that good atheists should have, whether it be under a humanist banner or whatever, but it eventually codified into being that you're sort of a intense, um, I don't know, almost sea lion type skeptic. Like you have to go and be like <laughs> annoyingly contrarian about everything. It's like, you know, your mom bought some amethyst because, you know, somebody told her that it was like good for your third eye or something. And you're like, ah, you got to like squawk at them and get mad. Like, man, it's just your mom and a rock. It's okay. Just let, like, her people, have a rock. let her have a rock. <laughs> and her little, like I meditate with it on my forehead. Cool, mom. <laughs> I hope that makes you feel good. Yeah, whatever. It's like, you know, is, are they putting it in schools? No. Okay, fine. Leave it be. So you had to be like pretty aggressively skeptical and then you also had to be pretty eventually aggressively social justice. Uh, they started cobbling in the social justice ideology, um, particularly first with women and gays um, because of the kind of still pretty strong uh, patriarchal and uh, heteronormative elements of conservative Christianity. So I was like, uh, I don't have time for this. I don't want. I don't want to be. I don't want to have to figure out how to be a good atheist. I just don't believe in God, and I don't really want to belong to some community that tells me how I have to be. And this was all apparently very bad. And then I wrote a book about it. And then Helen um, read that book. And when I asked you earlier about the article about why she no longer identifies as a feminist, it was the analysis that I had given about atheist that she had read in my book that made her decide that she didn't want to identify as a feminist. She just wanted to stand up for those principles and those um, points of activism or, or whatever that she thought were proper and useful, uh, almost on like a case by case basis or kind of in a constellation of, of views that she holds that don't need to be named mm -hmm. uh, in specific. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I haven't read that article. Unfortunately, I'll go look it up. Um, but I mean, I guess, like, I'm not quite at the point where I'm going to say that I reject feminism. I just more, I don't really care about using any labels at all. So if people want to call me a feminist, fine. If they don't want to, fine. I don't care. I just want to talk about what I believe in. But I mean, it's sort of similar. Yeah, yeah. Part of it, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to this. Part of it is that I just don't really want anything to do with so many people who call themselves feminists and what they're fighting for. But mm -hmm. also, as I said, it was so limiting and you start to get policed from outside, but also from inside, you know, like f everything from, you know, me having friends who are saying like, you know, if I talk about like 
you know, worrying about aging or getting fat or I wear makeup or like you say something unfeminist and they'll be like, how can you say that? Aren't you a feminist? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to be myself. (laughs) Like, leave me alone. (laughs) Like, I'm allowed to care about stuff. I live in this world like everyone else. I care what I look like. Sorry. Um, But also like, you know, you get within the feminist community. So within the feminist groups and communities or whatever you want to call them that I'm involved in, it's like I wasn't allowed to talk about certain stuff. So I would want to ask questions. I still wanted to be critical of what we were doing and I wasn't allowed to be. Not only were we not allowed to have these conversations, we're not allowed to like, I'm not allowed to ask questions and be like, well, what really happened there? Are you sure that this is what went down? How do you know? Why do I have to believe this? Like, I have no information. It's a, it's like, I'm, I'm being so vague, so I hope this no, makes no, sense. No, 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 no. Like, I, I follow you 100%. I know yeah. exactly what you mean. You, there's certain things that are just, uh, you know, unquestionable places, uh, you know, and you could get into whatever issue it is. And I actually think that, you know, this is this is where a lot of the f- very fertile um, debates need to be happening. And those, of course, being, require being the most informed possible. But we can we can not necessarily dive into anything too specific around feminism. We can see the same thing with Black Lives Matter, where, you know, everybody sees the video and they're like murder. And then it's like the details come out and it's, you know, that doesn't seem like it was actually a murder. (laughs) Uh Oh, and also nobody convicted that guy yet. Could we not use a conviction term until after the law has, has processed it? And that's, of course, why things get ambiguous, because. We're never going to have a perfect criminal justice system. And so the idea, of course, somebody asked me the other day on a podcast, they said, well, what do you think that, you know, what's right within the way the woke think about things? And I was like, well, you know, there are these gaps that the legal system and even the social system can't and don't totally take care of real problems. And they're right to acknowledge that. And then they basically get everything, everything else from that starting point wrong. And, uh, for example, since we brought up feminism and it will just get uncomfortable, um, rape is always going to be very hard to prosecute. That is a very Mm. real issue. It's an issue that bothered me through all of my twenties and most of my thirties that due process of law means a lot of rapists get away with it. Yeah. And that's a big problem. And so, you know, you now have this reply, you know, believe all women which means that somebody comes in and they say that this story, they say the sexual thing happened to them and they want to classify it as a sexual assault or a rape, depending on the circumstances. And now you just have to take that, you know, at face value, but that upsets due process of law, which if everybody was perfectly honest all the time, even with allowing that humans have, you know, not necessarily perfect perception of what's going on, but if everybody was perfectly honest, we could we could lean a lot more heavily into believe whatever. But we all know they some bitches out there that just make some shit up. So you, you do need due process as well. And so it's like you have these two things that are intention and the way that they're intention, because rape cases are often, as they say, he said, he said, she said, it's like one of those things nobody can say out loud five times. Um Women are very frequently because of the the ways. I mean, it's not always, but it's very frequently a man raping a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Women are much more often going to get screwed over by this. uh, I would say gap in prosecutorial ability. 
And that's a real problem. And so wanting to move that to the to a question about rape culture, do we have a cultural uh, set of attitudes that encourages people to, be, to to think that that kind of behavior is acceptable or not? And what do we do about that? And how do we how do we try to shape culture where that's not a thing we consider to be acceptable, so on and so forth, is a understandable and in many regards a reasonable move uh, that is necessary because the legal system in order to retain its um, its its validity is also going to have to have limitations that can't solve all the problems in this case. So something else has to fill in that very real gap. And there's a lot of fruitful space for important discussion debate there to figure out how to, how to close that gap, which I think the vast majority of people want to see done. And the question becomes how and, and by what means and what works and what doesn't, which is where I get pissed off at the current thing because it doesn't seem to care about figuring out the problems for real. It just wants to say, nope, this is how it is. And if you don't like it, we're just going to enforce it with, and, and, and as it is cancellation, you know, you get accused of some sexual impropriety, uh, believe all women, therefore canceled. Therefore, Louis C.K. can't do comedy anymore without everybody having a conniption fit. Therefore, um, you know, Al Franken has to step down from the Senate, which seemed to have been a political blunder of the highest possible order, especially because it seems to have been a conservative manipulation that made it happen in the first place and they got gamed. So it's like, you know, this current movement, not so good. But yeah. the thing that that exists in that gap in the law that that exists in is real and it's a thing. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's just not practical activism. Like you can't just say, believe all women, because that doesn't transfer into law. You can't like, that's not how the law works. And (laughs) I understand like, okay, like that's, this is not how things go down. Um, You're trying to charge somebody with something or prosecute somebody. Um, Like I get why that is a mantra believe women because as you say you know so few rapists are prosecuted there's this long history of people not believing women Mm -hmm. um but you still have to ask questions and you you just can't you can't just believe everything that everyone says point blank as blank especially if we're talking about prosecuting somebody but even so online like i still you know, like, of course, at first I was on board with the Me Too movement, and then it just turned into this thing that I started to feel kind of disturbed by because I, first of all, I hate online call-out culture. Like, I don't like this thing where you're just going to go around posting whatever you want and everybody right. just has to support you. And for the most part, everybody does support you because what is anybody supposed to say? People can't ask questions around those kinds of accusations mm-hmm. or any kind of accusations. You know, half of these accu- accusations that are some sort of coming out of, I guess, partly me too, partly all the black lives matter stuff mm-hmm. are, they make no sense to me. You know, I'm seeing right. these local restaurants or cafes or, breweries around where I live in Vancouver being called out online for Mm -hmm. like racism and harassment. And I'll read through, you know, dozens and dozens of Instagram story posts or tweets or Facebook posts, like documenting all this racism and harassment. And I get to the end and I'm like, okay, I guess I missed it. I'll have to go back and read them. (laughs) 
Where was it? I'm like, wait, what happened? What is it that happened? Oh, somebody was mad at their manager who maybe was a dick to them, but you haven't provided me with any specific information that demonstrates to me that anything went down that could be labeled racism or harassment. It's either a bunch of vague assumptions that you're on your part, or you're just mad at a situation and you're trying to politicize it either so that you feel better or so that you maybe can understand the situation better for yourself or I don't know, but it's just turned into this whole thing where you just yeah, yeah, post yeah. whatever you want and everybody goes into this groveling oh, cycle. Yeah, wow. Look, look how, how, how awful that whole thing was. And yeah, it's very weird. Um, I actually was very similar to you. I, I had, when the Me Too movement first started, I thought, wow, you know, that's a lot more people than I realized. And that kind of awareness raising moment was, I think, pretty powerful. Totally. And then all of the things that spiral around a status, a high status, you know, it, it's something that confers status or whatever started to happen. And I was just like, what is going on? So now you have like people telling their, their Me Too story. And it's, you don't want to discredit. It's like you're saying, it's like you can't ask questions or discredit somebody, but it's like, you read the story of what happened to him and you're like, somebody grabbed your butt. You're like, what? Like that happened to me like a thousand times when I was in high school by the mean girls making fun of me. Like, like somebody got drunk and hit on you. It's like, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like, so everybody has to do this. But then the worst is like these fucking celebrities decide they have to tell their stories. And it's like, you're next to people who had like real stories in the celebrity world. And then it's like these weird, just stupid stories that was like holy shit what is going on you know it's like they just had to be able to it was, it was like it changed from me too like it happened to me too to like me too me too i have a story too you know and it was like what is going on with this and then um then then people started to get burned by it and then i started to see the activists saying we need to bring me too to this you know domain we need me to chemistry <laughs> you know i was like what <laughs> we need me too to come to the what the atheist movement of all fucking things which oh. burned down over what was ultimately a me too thing in 2011 was like we need me too atheism it was like it started there <laughs> what are you talking about it was there <laughs> it was there a decade ago mm-hmm. what are you talking about you crazy people and it was like, okay, now we've got some mission creep going on. And this is like seriously left the original intention, which whether we want to talk about that being like the gross politics of sex around um, getting movie roles and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, high status positions in Hollywood and in and, and workplaces also, you know, the, the, the there's some gross stuff going on and everybody's aware of it and it shouldn't be going on. And everybody's kind of aware of that too. Um but then it just turned into this, like, what is what is this thing? It was just discrediting itself left, right, center. And it's, again, it's like, you know, people like myself are just kind of, you know, like doing this thing. I have all these videos of myself just, like, grabbing and rubbing my face from, <laughs> <laughs> from the grievance studies thing. It's like Mike, Mike told me, he was like, your camera is your therapist. Just turn it on all the time. So I have all these videos that are literally, I just turned the camera on, and I'm just like... <laughs> Oh, and so, but it was like that with me too. And I was like, this sucks. And then it just, you know, I don't know. Now it's like, be, it became this weird emblem of, uh, I don't know, after that thing with that poor comedian Aziza, sorry, or whatever, it was like, 
oh, that poor guy, he just sucks at sex. And yeah. then he blown up. I mean, like, don't be fair to suck at sex and or something is the lesson here. Oh. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, that was such a bad article. I mean, and the, the unfortunate reality around what's happened and how everybody's kind of just jumped on board and everybody just wants in regardless of whether or not their accusation is serious or legitimate is that now I just don't believe what I read, which I, maybe that's not unfortunate because you really should be thinking critically about everything that you read and you should be asking questions about all this stuff and you shouldn't just be believing stuff point blank. But now I'm just, I'm so much more skeptical than I ever was before because of how these these movements have been used in such uh, illegitimate and, and often just ridiculous. Right. And there is a tragedy there where the point of the thing, like at least what I saw was like, wow, you know, this is a way more common problem than I realized. It's very much kind of like coming out, like the coming Mm -hmm. out movement, like Harvey Milk was like, everybody needs to come out right now. You know, and it's like, why? Because all of a sudden they don't like this in the literature, the woke literature. All of a sudden you start generating relationship allyship. People realize it is their sisters. It is their friends. It is their brother. It's not their brothers in this case. Well, maybe it is. Um, So it's people they know and they care about. And they're like, wow, really? You know, you've kept that quiet, you know, and you're actually starting to have that thing. So when you have, as, as as you pointed out, when you have a problem historically running a long way that's not resolved, of not believing true claims. And then it just gets pissed away by, you know, this kind of like bandwagon effect. It's ultimately what it gets pissed away by is inflation. It's inflation on, on a social currency till until it's worth like Zimbabwe bucks. You know, you got to have 10 trillion rate bucks in order to get anybody to listen to you now uh, because the thing burned it out. And this is the same thing that's happening with all of the other, Kind of thing. Like, I don't know how how much longer racism is going to be an effective thing, but I'm even seeing like progressives writing serious things saying, what did I even see today? It was um, the reason that everything's still crazy is because people haven't realized that if somebody calls you a racist, you can just say, okay, and the world doesn't stop spinning. And if everybody just says, okay, and shrugs their shoulders a little bit. But then, I started to do that. Like I, somebody in the YouTube comments this week was like, are you guys racist to myself and Laura? I was my co-host on the other YouTube thing that I do. Um, and I was just like, yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah, like whatever. I'm super racist. Yeah. <laughs> Who's not? Um, yeah. I keep waiting to actually see like businesses, some business being all cheeky and saying proudly racist since 2020, you know, it's like, it's a thing now. It's like the Im- inflation and the, 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 Frankly, they have borderline hegemonic power. So their theory about how you subvert hegemonic power is correct. You can actually turn that back around on them and uh, they don't get to continue to control that just because they say they do. The social forces are bigger than them uh, and they, they don't seem to understand that. So this is this is common. I mean, I got smeared as as a right wing extremist who doesn't believe that black people belong in STEM this week by an epidemiologist. And I was like, well, there goes epidemiology. And like, how can I trust you ever again? You know, if that's your analysis of the situation, it's like, I'm this right-wing extremist that has only ever voted for Democrats in my entire life. I'm so right-wing extreme. 
you know, my right wing friends basically think I'm a commie because I think that we should have progressive tax structures instead of, you know, a 10% flat tax that wouldn't work. So it's like, yeah, I'm super right wing over here. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of my response too. And I mean, it's it's I mean, simply it's sort of the boy who cried wolf problem where it's mm-hmm. like, okay, wolf, everybody is racist and you're constantly accusing people of being racist who aren't being racist, like a bunch of those Karen videos. The Karen meme is sort mm-hmm. of a good example where like, yeah, some of that stuff is legitimate. Some of those videos, some of those stories, this is a white woman who's legitimately in the wrong or being racist or just being an asshole or whatever. But then a lot of them are just so void of any context. And when you do provide context, you realize that that's not what's going down and mm-hmm. so now I see I see that word. I see these videos and I'm not going to take it seriously. I don't believe these people anymore. Um, and that extends to all sorts of areas. I don't want to just focus on race. It's just that race is no, so it's, much it's the, central to the conversation right now. Um, I mean, transphobic is another one. It's like, totally. Well, it's not transphobic. Like existing is transphobic. It's like, all right, whatever. Um Right. And we we see like what happened to J.K. Rowling, who, you know, her essay that she wrote was in no way transphobic. She talked about her own experiences. She talked about her concerns for women and girls. I don't even think she said anything about trans in the whole essay, as I recall. And she's, you know, being called a monster, a monster, like I. What are you, you know, like, and by a lot of, you know, by, again, like people that I sort of know are acquaintances, friends of friends in Vancouver, and it's like acting like they have so much hatred for her. And I just am like, I just, I'm never going to take anything you say seriously, because you're so hyperbolic. Either you don't, you're not informed about what you're talking about. So in that case, maybe you just didn't read her essay. You just read about it. So I can't take you seriously because you're not doing your due diligence or whatever, Mm -hmm. or you're dishonest and you're just trying to get attention or you're projecting your anger here for some reason that I don't quite understand. Yeah. It's it's, so, yeah, it's just out of control. And again, you get this, you know, boy who called wolf, this inflation, this, the, it's just impossible to take at some point. I think it's going to hit critical mass too, that it's just going to be impossible to take people seriously who act that way. And so what I hope is, so my, my actual right wing friends, like some of my furthest right wing friends, as a matter of fact, I I do have them. I know you're not allowed to have black friends, but you can have right wing friends now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was talking to one though, and this guy's like, you know, old school and super super right wing and so he's like the word racist i've decided that this is about a month ago is over a month ago it was before the fourth of july when he told me this so he said the word racist doesn't mean anything to me anymore at all if somebody calls me racist it doesn't mean anything however and i know this is logically a paradox with what he just said but we just let it go because he's just talking he says however i know what the word racist means for me and i'm going to continue not being racist by that definition. And that's simple enough. And so what you hope is that that's what's going to happen is that we're going to trip a critical mass where people just no longer take these wound collectors and, you know, wolf criers and and belly acres and and the perpetually aggrieved seriously at their claims. And yet we retain that ability to know what real 
transphobia, real homophobia, real misogyny, real racism looks like so that the rest of us are all content to say, no, you know, we we learn those lessons of history and we're not going to be dicks to women or trans or gay or um, racial minorities or whatever. We're just not going to happen. But we're not taking your word for it anymore with, you know, the, the self-appointed activists who are going to speak for everybody. I think that's what I that's what I hope happens. If that happens, we come out of this crisis, you know, not unscathed, but pointed in a better direction. Uh, I think a much better direction than we have been going in. The scary yeah. part is if that fails and the sleeping giant wakes up and people that are in the majority groups, whatever relevant ones, decide they're going to start playing identity politics to win. That's bad. That's real bad. And that's what you don't want to have happen. Yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah, the unfortunate truth is that this, this like, I mean, you've referred to wokeness as a cult and I think that's pretty accurate, but making activism into a religion and a cult because you want so badly for people to take it seriously, I think maybe that's an overly optimistic way of looking at it has totally backfired. Like you want to enforce the fact that women are being sexually harassed and sexually assaulted all the time. I mean, I didn't need me to, to know that I knew that already, Mm -hmm. but I think you're right that it, it showed people how prevalent this is. And I think that women who probably felt, disempowered like they couldn't get their story out there because these were men in positions of power and they did have so much um sway in whatever circles they were operating in that finally they're getting their stories out and being taken seriously which is a good thing but because it's gotten taken to such an extreme in all of these various categories you know feminism race trans activism blah 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 is that yeah i think that it's just having, it's going to at some point have the opposite effect. I think people are waking up to this for sure. You know, if you talk to people privately and one-on-one, they'll talk to you about this stuff. They won't say it online for the most part, but right. And yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, so I guess what you're hoping will happen would be the best case scenario. Yeah. I think, I think that really would be, it'd be sort of in a sense, stealing the, kernel of truth of what what motivates them and then being able to just walk away from the kind of rhetorical and emotional bullying that the the movement has been using so far very successfully to to corner people and pin them in um which also does the i mean i keep thinking about it it's kind of unfortunate because i don't want to give it credit but it forces people to actually reckon with these issues on a deeper level than they probably have. And the theory, although they do it in a screwy way, says that there's probably a lot of the reason that people haven't reckoned with these issues correctly is because they've been comfortable enough, comfortable enough where they haven't felt like they have to. And so uh, it sort of fixes that. And that's also good, but it's like, it's hard to credit what they're doing for making that the thing, because the reason people are engaging with it isn't to understand what they're saying and, and, uh, conclude the same thing it's it's to understand what they're saying because they can clearly see that it's literally insane and doing it all wrong and seeing where it's going wrong and how it could be done better so the best case scenario for me then would be to for that to continue to happen and have people be able to steal that 
it's like stealing the the underlying ethos that's motivating them and saying, you know, we're not going to do it with this screwed up way. We're just going to take what you're talking about and do it right because you guys can't. Uh, that would be, I think, the ideal outcome. Yeah, and I mean, what you say about, you know, this is this has been a big problem in feminism, and it's a problem, and it's sort of why I sort of wanted to start branching out in many ways is because I realized that, you know, when you do create these insular communities, activist communities, you know, disciplines, what have you, where you refuse to be challenged and you treat those who do challenge you as inherent enemies, um, you end up with bad theory and bad practice and bad mantras. And so in my, you know, I've been writing about feminism since, you know, for like a decade, I guess now. And eventually I just started to get, um, you know, intellectually bored, to be honest, you know, like I do want to challenge myself and my own thinking Mm-hmm. And, and I, I want to learn and I don't, I started to just feel like I was repeating myself and it was too easy. You just start, like, you know what to say, you know right. what the lines are, you know, the analysis, so you can just do it over and over and over and over. And if people do start to ask you questions and you can't answer those questions effectively, then you're like, Oh, this, I need to, I need to check myself. Like maybe right. what I'm saying isn't solid. Maybe it's not true. Maybe it is, but I need to, I need to be challenged to ensure that what I'm saying is useful and practical and makes sense and isn't just, you know, people aren't just going to applaud at me because I'm saying the same thing that they want to hear. It reinforces what they want to believe or what they already believe. Right, right. And that's where you start to get that kind of cultish behavior, even if it's um, organic that it came into being, where it's uh, the idea of being challenged itself becomes, you know, super taboo. Um and therefore you kind of have to, you know, always pull people further and further into the, the right way of thinking and close off from anybody who might challenge. Like, that's the thing that I run into as being the scariest and ugliest part of this is the the desire to have people separate from one another for disagreement. And I think that we've been doing that for a long time and it's been, been an issue. And so now, you know, hearing you say that, it makes me think, you know, we maybe really, I keep hearing it from people. So I think we really might be getting to a place where people want to hear the other side of the story again, rather than just, you know, kind of been, be fed back the same comfortable thing that they, they've heard over and over again. And so I hope that's correct. You know, hearing you say it's, you know, I want to branch out. I want to be challenged. We need more of that. You know, my general under, under, Lying hypothesis for human thought in general is that we're remarkably intelligent and remarkably stupid at the same time. And even the smartest among us are right about things only a small percentage of the time. And the checking of each by each is what, you know, as, as, as they say in the Bible, let's get all Christian on it, is iron sharpens iron. You know, the checking of each by each, though, is what allows us to figure out which of those ideas. So if I forward 100 ideas, maybe three of them are good. And something, I'm going to think the other 97 are good unless I really dig into them. But something has to cut that 97% crap out. Sturgeon's Law is 90% of everything is crap. So maybe it's I get 10 good ones. I don't know. But uh I think that's true for everybody and we all tend to be a little bit 
too proud of ourselves. It's, it's not a great trait, but it's very human. So we tend to be too invested in our own ideas. But what we actually need is to have that challenge. We have to get our ideas out there. We have to let our ideas get criticized and face, you know, whatever sorts of criticism. And we have to be able to then rise ourselves to say, oh, no, wait, I need to understand this better. And when I understood it better, I now I see where you were coming from. This is what they call dialectic, by the way. It's kind of funny that this whole thing's rooted in Marxism and the people doing it don't understand dialectic in the first place. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I understand better where we were coming from now. And now we can move forward um, with this better understanding. And I see where you were saying, so, you know, this refinement of ideas over time is how you get to better ideas. Because none of us is, I mean, we are, we can be quite, I mean, people can be genuinely brilliant, but even the most brilliant of us isn't that smart. Uh, just We're just not. The limitations on human intelligence are actually far greater than um, the expression of it. And that's why you could certainly, certainly in, say, 1000 BC, there was somebody as smart as Albert Einstein, and we didn't get relativity out of it, right? It, it, somebody was smart enough to think of it. Statistically speaking, somebody on the planet was probably that smart and he wasn't probably properly nourished or she was, you know, locked up as a sex slave for some fucking conqueror or something. And who knows, uh, maybe burned as a witch, burned as a witch, or maybe even given, you know, priestly status in, you know, on a highway under the, the, the ruler, and given tons of respect and all of the research capacity of the day, but all there are are not well-developed ideas yet to work with. And so that person's intelligence isn't anything like the collective effect of hundreds or thousands of years of checking each by each and keeping good ideas and getting rid of bad ideas, uh, which took us a long, we didn't even invent that until like, you know, not properly until quite recently where we started to really get into the nuts and bolts of how it works. All cultures and all times have had some elements of it, but we didn't really figure out liberalism and science until like 250 years ago as a species. And so until you get to that place, you know, a lot of it's random movement. And, you know, it's like I have my pictures from grad school of like Brownian motion in my head now. And it's like, ah, help math. We came back to math. <laughs> but no, it's like, it, it's hard. It's hard to get right answers about the world. And none of us are that, that freaking smart. We can only work with, you know, the kind of the clay we're given. And it takes a lot of people working it to get it anywhere good. Totally. Um, thanks so much for talking with me. It was such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. It was really enjoyable. Yeah, thanks. Um, it, was, it was really a good one. Yeah. Um, so what's your podcast? Where can people find... So I, yeah, I do, I don't, I haven't ventured into inviting other people yet. I'm actually not okay. very happy interviewing people. I feel very uncomfortable asking people questions. I don't like to pry. I figure people's business is their business. So I ask terrible questions. You'll um, get better. <laughs> I, I will, I know. And so I haven't done that, but it's, so they're all solo, but it's, I call it the new discourses podcast new discourses podcast because i'm not creative at all it's embedded in my website new discourses if you can find new discourses you can find it i think you just click on the audio tab and you'll find all of them and you can find it on whatever favorite platform is uh from there but newdiscourses.com is the website and you can i don't know how to tell people to do better than that i don't even know where it is for sure 
Okay. And obviously people can follow you on Twitter. Is it Conceptual James? Is that your handle? Yeah, Conceptual James, yeah. which I get made fun of relentlessly for. And they, it's like, how are you going to make fun of me for something I chose? They're like, Conceptual James. Like they put a space in there. Like now it's like, I'm just conceptual or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> I chose that. In fact, I chose that off of Conceptual Penis. It's, it was a joke to begin with. <laughs> how are you going to make fun of me for that? These stupid people. Um, but yeah, it's at conceptual James. I know you can't follow me on Twitter because you're so you are super dangerous. I'm Um, so harmful. Man, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with harmful, dangerous people lately, and you are, (laughs) you might be the highest on the list, but I don't know. Helen is, she, she's been deplatformed a few times now for the, (laughs) that she's so dangerous that everybody in the room will be threatened or something like that. And I was like, Helen, (laughs) (laughs) Ellen, oh yeah, I find it. I know. I get a lot of that kind of feedback when people talk to me. They're like, "Wow, you're not scary at all." I'm like, "No, (laughs) I'm not." What they say on the internet. Yeah, reputations proceeding. No, I just thought you were like obviously dangerous and cool, as opposed to dangerous and scary. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. That's right. You are right. You're right. That's a correct assessment. Um, (laughs) Awesome. Good to talk to you. Yep. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying the other interviews and the content we're producing, please do consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com slash Megan Murphy and sign up. Five, ten, twenty-five bucks a month. It all helps. We rely entirely on supporters and donors like you to keep doing this work. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next time on The Same Drugs with Megan Murphy.